Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, like I mentioned, we are in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3. We just have three small verses um, that we're going to spend our time in together, but, to, but it is packed um, with a lot of, of good stuff. And so, in fact, we're probably not going to be able to fully um, look at everything in these three verses. There's so much here. But, but I want to remind you, I want to take you back, if you've not been with us maybe the last few weeks, uh, it's really critical to kind of understand where we've been so we're in the book of Hebrews, uh, and it's a 13-chapter book, and we're just approaching the end of it. And, and really what the book of Hebrews has been all about, it's been written to a, a group of Hebrews that have uh, become Christians, uh, or at least many of them have become Christians. Maybe some of them are, are considering what it means to follow Christ. And, and you can see they're deeply rooted in their, their heritage and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And so the author here is writing to them and has been just telling them that, they, that there's something new, that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, the thing they've been waiting for, and that he's fulfilled all of the Levitical system. He's, he's become the great high priest. He is, he's been the sacrificial lamb. He's been the perfect sacrifice. And so we've been talking about how that's been hard for them to, to move away from that. And so the author continually takes them back into history and reminds them of things about their ancestors. Early on in some of the early chapters, he reminds them that that they were imperfect. The ancestors were imperfect. They disobeyed God and what happened. And then we saw that uh, he reminds them that that this Jesus has fulfilled all of these things. And and he points to all of the, the sacrificial system. He lays it all out and he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And then last few weeks, we've been looking at the faith. He's talking about the faith of their ancestors. And when we talked about faith in a couple of different ways, two weeks ago, we looked at that he talks about a, a biblical faith changes us. And that was kind of the point for the message a couple weeks ago. And, and what we kind of said was, and notice that I said biblical faith. I want to remind you again that when we talk about faith, we have to be very careful that we define words. Because when we say faith, we have there's lots of people of faith in the world, but not everyone obviously has a biblical faith. There's people that have faith in all sorts of things and different religions and different worldviews, and we use the word faith a lot. And so I've been really careful over these past few weeks to, to really define that and say it's biblical faith. And when we talk about biblical faith, what does that mean? It means that we have faith, we believe that there is one God that has sent his son into the world to deliver sinful people, which everybody is sinful, from the penalty of God's wrath. And without that sacrificial system, without Jesus sacrificing for us and our, our trust in him, our faith in him, we will spend eternity without God. And so when we understand that we believe that Jesus came, he was sinless, he dies, he was resurrected, and if we believe and trust in him, we will be given eternal life. That is biblical faith. That's the, the big overarching theme of what biblical faith looks like. And so we said about biblical faith two weeks ago that it changes us. How does biblical faith change us? It changes us because if we believe that, if we really have it, if we've really been born again, now we would say that being born again means that I've I've believed, but God has worked in my heart, caused me to be a new creation, um, has given me a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, as it says in the Old Testament. And, And now we believe, and that's a supernatural thing. So coming to Christ is a supernatural thing that God is doing. But the beauty about that is that 
says that anyone can believe. And so we have a responsibility to believe and to be faithful. And then God transforms us. And that, that's just this beautiful thing that happens. And once that happens, the point was is that biblical faith then changes us. If we truly are Christ, if we truly believe, we will begin to change. And that, that biblical faith helps guide our changing. And so what we said was that biblical faith changes what we fear. We don't fear the same things when we're a believer. We don't fear death the same way, right? Doesn't mean that it's our friend, doesn't mean that we want it, but we don't fear it like we would as an unbeliever. We also, it changes what we, uh, what we choose. If we really are following Christ with a biblical faith, it changes our decision-making process. It changes maybe who we date. It changes our, our personal relationships. It changes our, um, our, our changes our perceptions of sexuality. It changes all of those things. But those are choices that we make. So biblical faith changes what we choose and how we live that faith out. It obviously changes our future. It changes what we trust in. And so all of those pictures we talked about two weeks ago. Then last week, we, we kind of came forward a little bit and said in the text there, it said, the, the author basically writes and says, okay, I'm encouraging you with all of these people, but I want to I let you know, I want to be clear with you that if you're going to follow Jesus and have this type of biblical faith that changes you, and be devoted to Christ and follow after him. Now, remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a group of Hebrews that is really rooted in the Old Testament Levitical system, and he's telling them they have to let go of that and they have to follow Jesus. And in the first century, in the second century, and moving forward, he's saying, but it could cost you your life. He's been very clear. He's been very upfront. And so what he does, he goes back in the Old Testament, and he says, our ancestors... Their belief in God, they were looking forward to the Messiah. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus and who he was going to be, but they knew that the Messiah was going to come. He gives examples to them, and he says, these people died. They were beaten. They were flogged. They were beheaded. They were sawn in two for their faith. And they didn't yield. They didn't yield. And so, biblical faith sustains us, and that was the point. So that's what the author's been doing. Now the author is, is approaching here in chapter 12. He's, he's changing gears a little bit. Now he's going to encourage them, right? He's going to encourage them. He's going to try and motivate them and explain how biblical faith really should drive us, inspire us, and motivate us. And it also instructs us. It instructs us how to live out this faith. What, 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 should, what should that look like? And so that's your big idea this morning. Biblical faith motivates us and instructs us. Biblical faith motivates and instructs us. And so that's what, he, what he's trying to do here. He's trying to motivate them. He's, he spent this time saying, look at all these people in your ancestors, our past. They were faithful. They, they, they're willing to die for their faith. And, and it may cause that for you. But trust me, if you will believe, God is faithful. And so he's going to encourage them here in this faithfulness. Now, as we start chapter 12, um, this, this exhortation or this motivation is to live for Christ. Now, don't miss that. He's saying, you need to live for Jesus. You're not hanging on anymore to the Old Testament, not to the Levitical system. God, it was good. It was right. God did that. It was to point to Jesus. But he's here. He's come. He's died. He's resurrected. Now you need to live for him. And when he talks about living for him, he uses an analogy or a metaphor, I should say, about what it means to run a race. He compares it to this idea of running a race. So really what he's saying, if you're going to live for Christ, you're going to have to run. And, and you're going to have to run and endure and do all of these things. And it's going to be, it's going to be grueling, maybe. 
And so he's going to wrap this up in this metaphor. Now, I will tell you that um, in the New Testament, many of the authors use metaphors to be able to communicate biblical truths or principles in Scripture that, that they're trying to get across. We, we can see them in many different places. If you're uh, familiar with like the, the parable of the sower, right? This idea of a, a man goes out and he sows seed and it comes up or, or the wheat and the, the weeds, the wheat and the tares. This, these are agrarian type of metaphors. They're, it was a very um, farming community. So the, the people taught that way and they told stories and, and metaphors to be able to explain things. Some of the parables were told that way to be able to help people understand. We know that the apostle Paul uses military metaphors. The he, or excuse me, um, Philippians, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, right? It's a military metaphor. The, the shield, the shield, the, the helmet, the sword, all of those things were military. Paul talks about us being soldiers for Christ, right? This whole picture about the metaphor, he's helping them to understand and visualize something that's it's kind of in their world so that they can help understand the biblical truths that he's trying to speak to them. Well, today in our text, the author, uh, which I will say many people think is Paul. We don't know. It doesn't say, and so we don't, we don't know. But the author here is going to use an athletic metaphor. And so what I, what I want you to think about as we're going through this, these three verses is see if all the places you can see where Paul is kind of weaving this metaphor in to the story he's telling them, right, and how he's encouraging them and instructing them here in their faith. So in this culture... Um, Many people believe that, obviously, this, this um, picture of this metaphor, right? I want to paint this picture a little bit. It's, he's talking about running a race. Now, when he's painting that picture, we, we probably think he's probably speaking to a group of Hebrews. that They're living, obviously, they're living in a very Greek world, cultural world. And we would call those people Hellenized Jews or Hellenized. Uh, they, they're, spiritually, they're Jewish, they're Hebrew, but and maybe now they're Christians, but they're living in a Greek culture. There's Greek language, uh, Greek literature, uh, all of that is, the, the culture is Greek, and so we call them Hellenized. Well, one of the things in the Greek culture, which was big, was athletics. Um, we think, especially in Alexandria and places like that, there was stadiums and coliseums built, and, and there was participation in athletics and competitions. And so he's, he's painting this picture for them, and so obviously they, they understand this because he wouldn't be using these statements in this metaphor if they didn't live in that type of world. And so he begins to paint this picture, and he's talking about a race that's going to take place in a stadium, and there's hundreds if not thousands of people looking on, this great cloud of witnesses that's looking down and looking in on them. And the winner is going to get a crown, and if you remember in, in Greek, um, there's, it's called a laurel crown. It's, it's, a, it's a wreath-looking thing. It's made out of bay, bay laurel leaves and, and some other things. It's placed on their head, and, and they would get this crown for winning the competition. It would signify their victory. And not only that, when you won, after the games were over, you would get to sit with royalty. This idea that you would sit down with royalty, and it would be this peace that, that you were got to be um, share in, in this great honor to be able to be with them. It signified, once again, your victory. So now as we go through this, I want you to see if you can see the places where Paul, is, or Paul the author here, is interweaving these things together, right? All right. So he's going to do this to motivate his readers to live for Christ. All right. The, I want to look at these three verses, and we're going to pull out three kind of high-level 
pieces. And then we're going to look at each one of them in some detail. So don't write these down. We're going to cover these. Number one, we're going to look at how we should run the race. I think the author is going to explain to his readers how we should run this race. He's going to implore them and motivate them to run, but he just doesn't say run. He's going to tell them how they should run. He's going to tell them how they should do this. He's also going to then say what they need to focus on as they run. So this idea of what do you focus on, if you've ever been a runner, if you've ever been in sports, um, it's, it's a very mental thing. I remember playing soccer and uh, when we were a, a, you know, played for Northmont, we were uh, obviously one of the better teams in the league, and, and there would be times that we would sit in a room quietly and think about playing and focus on how we play, right? It's what we set our mind to is so very, very important, right? And so he's going to talk a little bit about what they set their minds to and what they keep their focus on. And then third thing we're going to look at is, is what they need to complete the race. There's some, um, some inanimate things. These aren't physical things, but what they need to complete the race. And so we're going to look at those three things, and then we're going to break those apart a little bit and show a few things in that. Okay, first thing, we're going to look at how we should run, all right? So he's telling them to run, and so now the author in verse 1 is going to say, okay, here's how you run. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So once again, what do you see here in that first word, therefore? So anytime you see that word, we see it a lot, it's going back and saying, because of what I've just told you, what has he just got done in chapter 11 doing? He's saying, look, these are people of faith. They have given their life away to follow God, right? They've given their life away to be obedient, to, to be faithful to God. And therefore, since we have this great group of witnesses in our past, Moses, you know, right? All of these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, all of these people, right? Rahab, all of these people, they've been faithful. And so therefore, because of that, now he begins to, so what does he say? Since we have, therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who are these great cloud of witnesses? All the people he's just got done talking about, right? And he uses this idea of being surrounded by them. Now, this, this is where the metaphor starts to intertwine. He's given the picture that they're in the stadium and there's people surrounding them there. Now, he's not saying that these witnesses are looking in and watching what they do. He's saying there's this great cloud of witnesses that we have in our life. Right? So you have to be careful where you don't, don't let the metaphor take over. It's this great cloud of witnesses we have in our life, and we look to them, and we say, they lived this way. And, and it's a great cloud. It's like people being around us. All right? he's, he's not saying that these people are looking in on us. That's not what he's saying. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but I don't believe that's what he's saying. So then he says, so because of that, because all of these we have this great cloud of witnesses because we have all these faithful people that have lived this example for us, that have shown us that, that we can be faithful even if it costs us in their life. And what does he say? That we're gonna, first thing we're going to look at is, is how we run is that we need to run with confidence. We need to run with confidence. This idea here that, that we're running with confidence, what do we have confidence in? Is we have confidence because somebody's done this before us. This can be done. This is possible. Others have lived this faith out, this biblical faith out. It's happened. We can see it. Our grandfather, our great-grandfather, all these people in our history have lived this faith out. They have been faithful. And so I can run with confidence. This is not something that I need to, to shy away from. This is possible. God will give us the strength to do this. We can see that. So here, I believe that it's one of the important things about 
being involved in a, in a local church, right? Um, this, this great cloud of witnesses. Now, now, while I believe that we also can look back here into Scripture in the Old Testament and, and we can be encouraged and motivated by these great witnesses that has been laid out in chapter 11, I think that's, it's there for us as much as it was there for them. I would also encourage you, I think there's some application here to say, we can look around and I would encourage you to look around your own life and say, do I have people in my life that I know or that, that have been in my past that I can look and be encouraged by their faithfulness, how they lived out their life, how they were obedient, how they maybe even suffered for the gospel. And see, one of the purposes of putting to, that God putting together the church is to be able to put us with other people so that we can be encouraged, that, that we can have that understanding, that unity. We can have those witnesses around us. So the scripture always uses this term that we're witnesses for Christ. And absolutely, we are a witness to the unbelieving world. We're a witness to those who don't know Christ yet. But I would tell you, and I would make the argument that we're witnesses to each other, that we encourage one another just by being here together. I've said this many times in the last few weeks. I just think it's so important. Your showing up for service is an encouragement. It's an encouragement to other people. It's an encouragement to me. I'll give you a, a very uh, personal example. This morning, I, I've been, recently I've been speaking with gentle, a gentleman who hasn't been here for quite some time. There's some things going on in his life, and he's been hard. And, and, and uh, I met with him a while back, and I, I had a great lunch with him. And I just really tried to encourage him and, and kind of just what the author is doing here, right? And saying, yes, this is hard. I know this is hard. But, but you really, it's so important if you could just be in, in fellowship and be sitting under the teaching of the word. And, and you know what? I'm standing back in the pastor's corner first service and I see the guy. He came alone. He has a family. But there's a lot of struggles there, a lot of things going on. And, and he's, he's there. And it encouraged me. I mean, I was greatly encouraged. I was thanking the Lord and just saying, I, I know that he's pushing in. I know that this guy is, is stepping out. He's, he's being challenged. He, it would have been much easier to stay home. He's been faithfully watching on the live stream. I've talked to him about it. He's been faithfully watching on the live stream, but he came out. And why? Because I encouraged him. Because it reminded him of the importance of the fellowship of the church and that, that he will be an encouragement to other people. I just talked to somebody before service started, and, and somebody said, when I got here, the parking lot was, was pretty much full. And they said, it's so wonderful to see that. See, just the parking lot being full is an encouragement because people are coming to hear the gospel. People are coming to say, other people believe what I believe. Other people are stepping out and believing and holding fast to the gospel and to who Jesus is, and that is an encouragement. So if you, if you do nothing else, if you have no other gift than to show up, then that's a good gift. So I encourage you to continue to just show up and be encouraged so we can run with confidence. All right, the second thing I want to show you here in verse 1 is that we need to run with wisdom and obedience. So it's one thing to have confidence as we're doing something, right? It's another thing to, to run with obedience. So we can be confident, but if we're not wise in how we run, it can be detrimental, right? It can be detrimental. And so here what the author lays out in the second part of verse 1 is this. He said, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, this idea of laying aside every weight, you know, we, we sometimes have to now kind of look at the context and say, what could he be talking about? What does it mean to lay aside every weight? Now, it's not sin, it doesn't look like, because he referenced sin separately. And sin, and so this, this, these weight, this weight is not sin, it doesn't look like. And so what could he be referring to? Well, one, one particular thing, and I think this is 
a good chance of what he's referring to. He's talking about the Levitical system. It's a weight. Yes, it's been good. It's been, it's been helped you. It's, it's trained you up to the where you need to be, but it's a weight. Now it's time to let that go, to set it aside and run with perseverance, right? Run with endurance. Let that go. It's, it's been part of your history. It's been good. God has provided it, but let it go. Now, once again, we go back to the analogy here again. This is where it kind of weaves together, the metaphor, I should say. In the Greek culture, when you ran or when you practiced, you carried weights. Athletes do that today. They put ankle weights on. They put weights on their wrists. They do all sorts of things, and they run. Military, you have a rucksack, and you put 80, 60 to 80 pounds in it, and you run, and you run, and you run, right? And, and we would do all sorts of things. And, and all of a sudden, when you strip those things away, what? You are lighter on your feet. You're stronger. You can run. You don't want to run with that stuff on. And what the author is saying here, look, it is good. All of the Levitical system has trained you and prepared you for this day. Now let it sit it down. And now run. Run. right? Run for Christ. Run. Do this for him. Do it for God's glory. Do this. But you don't need to carry that anymore. Because if you do, that's going to be a burden to you. And it's going to get in the way. It's going to burden you. And you're not going to be able to run the way you should. And I would just ask you, what burdens do you have that you ought to lay down? Now remember, it's not, he's not talking about sin. But is it possible that in our life, we're carrying things, we're committing to things that are good. But it's inhibiting our running for Christ. It's inhibiting our biblical faith. Now, what could those things be? Endless, countless number of things. If you're busy every night of the week doing something, whether sports or entertainment or activities and every weekend, you need to set some things down. You need to be involved in community. You need to be involved in um, Bible study or life groups. Many people are busy on Sundays because they've picked all these things up. They're not necessarily sinful. It could be sports activities. It could be all sorts of entertainment, all sorts of things, Right? They're not sinful, but they're, not, they're, they're inhibiting your running. And what the author is saying is sometimes you've got to set those things down. They're not bad, but you need to let them go because you will not run the way you should be running. And then he says, in the sin which clings so closely. Now, once again, we, that's, a, that's a big topic. You know, all sin, I think the, the point here, one of the points the author is trying to make is, is that sin is always clinging to us. <laughs> Amen? Even when we're a believer. Notice in the New Testament, it never says that once we become a Christ follower, that sin is no longer a problem. In fact, I would argue that sin is more apparent in our life and more of a burden in our life because we recognize it as sin. We, we struggle with it. We, we combat it. The Holy Spirit has been given us to, so that we can overcome. We can say no to sin. But even with that, in our flesh, we will fail and we will still succumb to sin. And the author is just making this he says, you need to lay aside the sin that so, so clings to you so easily, right? I, I think of the Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 7. He, he just basically says, look, I, the thing I, I should do, I don't do. And the things I do, I shouldn't do. I, I just see this law of sin working in my flesh. Now, here's a guy who wrote most of the New Testament, who is, loves the Lord, who has had the, the, the Damascus experience. Jesus has appeared to him, knocked him off. He's been blinded. His sight has been restored. He's been, been born again. And yet, he is admitting that he struggles with sin. And so the author is just making this, this point here. He says, look, if you're going to run, you've got you to 
you've got to turn away from your sin. You've you got to let go of those things. You can't run the race and be a great witness and run well if you're holding on to sin in your life. You need to let it go. You need to repent from it and turn away from it. This idea of sin, what does sin do when we're running the race? It knocks us off course. It, 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 it distracts us. It, it, it takes up our energy. We only have so much energy to run, and every piece of it needs to be focused on, on following Christ and running for purpose, and yet sin easily distracts us. Many times sin will even cause us to leave the fellowship of the body of believers. And so there truly we are, now we're not even, almost not even in the race any longer at times. All right, what's the third thing? Not only do we run with endurance and to run with wisdom and obedience, but we are to run with endurance, right? Run with endurance. We're to run with confidence, to run with wisdom and obedience, and to run with endurance. He finishes this verse out and he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I like how the author says, let us run. It shows this picture of a plurality of people moving for the kingdom, that we're running as a people, right? We're, we're functioning as a body, as a congregation, as the, the body of Christ, right? We're, we're the flock. It's this picture of, of unity in, in the flock, and we're moving together. You notice the shepherd shepherds the flock together. He doesn't do one at a time. The flock moves together, and it says, let us run. Let us this, once this, again, it's this picture of that we can encourage one another, we can run beside one another, right? You see a lot of times if you watch much running or, or um, uh, especially, uh, I think, and I'm not, a, I'm not a runner, I hated running, um, and I played soccer, go figure, but, but some of these people that run cross country, there was just a big meet here, I think, in Brookville just a few weeks ago, and, and a lot of times teams run together for a long time. Like for the first part of it, they're running side by side. And, and I think, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not a big, I think that's because of the encouragement, they're running with people they know. They're encouraging one another. They're, they're able to, to just be an encouragement to one another. And at some point, they may break out and say, okay, I'm going to leave because I'm going to try and win this thing. But there's this idea of running together. I love how the author puts that. And then he says, that, but we must run with endurance, right? Let's, what's this mean, endurance? It means that, that we need to leave nothing, everything on the field is what we used to say, right? Leave nothing left. When you run, everything is going to be poured out. This word agony has this, this picture in, in sports. This, this, we, we just give everything we have, and if, if we can cross the finish line, you see that many times with runners, right? They hit the finish line, and they collapse. They have given everything, but they've ran with endurance. Nothing has held them back. They've poured everything out, and that's really the picture that the author is trying to get across here. He says, you have to endure, and, and notice that he's, he's reminding them Last week, he's reminded them of all the suffering that has taken place in the past, that these people, our ancestors, endured great persecution, great persecution. And so you must run with endurance. I will tell you that as a Christian, as a pastor, uh, endurance is, is so critical. Many times, I'm sure you and, and I, in many ways, we want to give up. We want to just quit running. We just want to quit. I'm tired I'm, I'm, I'm depressed about something or I've, uh, something's happened, not maybe because of my sin, maybe because something I have other things that I've picked up that I'm carrying with me, and that's where the wisdom of setting those things down, all sorts of things. And the author is just saying, no matter what, keep running. Don't quit running. Run with endurance. All right, 
Here's the second thing we're going to look at. Not only is how we should run, which we've just looked at, but the second thing we're going to look at is what must we focus on as we run? What must we focus on as we run? Now, this idea is that we're going to jump into verse 2 here, but this idea of what we're focusing on, um, it's, it's where our mind is set. It's, it's a little bit like, in, in some different analogies, if you use a compass, and, and if you have anybody's ever hiked in the mountains or, or, or long distances, use a compass and you find out where you're going and you see which direction you need to go and you're looking at your map and you sight yourself and you say, okay, that, that tree way out there, miles and miles away, or that mountain or whatever, that is where I'm going. I'm setting my eyes on that because if I don't get my eyes focused on that, I will, I will, I will wander, right? I have to look at something and set my mark and follow it. And that really what the author is saying is, is you've got to focus on something to run. And so what is it? Well, notice what he says in the beginning of verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. This idea here, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the first thing he says is, one of the things you're going to need to focus on is Christ. It is the thing that has to be our focus. See, many of us, um, we leave here, we're focused on Jesus on Sunday morning, the hours that you're here, and when you leave here, you're not focused any longer. And, and we have to make sure that we're working that into our life, that we are focused. And that's one of the reasons why um, every morning, a lot of times before my feet hit the ground, when I wake up, I pray, I talk to the Lord uh, before I ever get out of bed. It's the last thing I do before I go to bed. Have a conversation with the Lord because he has to continue to be my focus. Obviously, many times during the day, I am, I'm reminding myself that he needs to be my focus. It's keeping, because if I don't, I will wander. I will drift. You will drift. So what do we see here? Let, let's, there's a, something, as we, as we focus specifically here on how we run, I think the author is going to say we need to focus on the person and the work of Christ. So there's two specific things. We're going to focus on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Jesus was a real person. He, he really did live. I don't know that these people that he's writing to ever knew Jesus, ever saw him. But the author is saying that, that Jesus is real. He's, we have a relationship with him today, some 2,000 years after the resurrection. I believe that we have a, a real relationship with a person named Jesus who is alive, and we have that relationship. And then he's also going to encourage them the work of Christ. We need, to, we need to stay focused on the work because it's not just on who Jesus is, it's but what Jesus did because that is so critical in what he did because if he was just a good guy, which is what many, of, many people in the world think, well, Jesus was just a great guy. He was a great teacher. Well, if that's all he was, then our faith is in vain, folks. If he did not die and was sinless and did not die and was not resurrected and is not the Messiah, the Son of God, then, then our faith is in vain. There's no salvation for us. There's no atonement for our sin. He would not be the perfect sacrifice. It would not be enough. So this idea, though, that we need to keep our eyes on the person of Christ. I, I love how Paul kind of puts it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Now, this is where Paul is just kind of pouring himself out here. So I just, I just want to, I'm, the point here is that I think Paul is saying, this is how much I'm, I'm setting my, my vision and my life on Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Now, if you look at that verse in the context of the running, he's saying, look, I'm letting everything else fall away. I'm not carrying anything that is a, because nothing is of value except for obtaining my relationship with Christ. Ultimately, there in Ephesians, he goes on and says, I'm working towards the resurrection from the dead. That's the prize. The prize is not just the forgiveness of sin. It's the resurrection from the dead. It's, it's living for eternity with God and our King and our Messiah. And he says, I count everything else as loss. I, I don't, I don't, everything else is rubbish because my goal is to gain Christ, and so my eyes are fixed on him. And it goes on there, and it says that he wants to be the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now, here's where we're talking about the work of Christ. He's the founder of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. So where do we see that? And one of the great things about when you're studying Scripture is, if at all possible, to stay in the, the letter or the book that you're studying because the author is using similar words and he has a, a, a certain way he's trying to communicate what he's getting across, this biblical truth. And so many times it's best to stay in the text, if you can, in the book. And so if we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, this idea of being the founder of our faith, what does the author say? In verse 10, or chapter 2, verse 10, he says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so he's the founder here of all things, right? It's the gospel of John. Jesus is the creator of all things. All things were made through him and for him. And bringing many sons to glory, right, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here the writer is just saying Jesus is the founder of the faith. He is the thing that our faith is rooted on. Once again, I would take you back to Paul, and if Paul says, look, if Jesus is not resurrected, then our faith is in vain, because he is the foundation of everything that we believe. And you remove that piece, the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, the resurrection, then, then nothing else matters in Scripture. It is all good stories, it's all history, but nothing matters. It's only if we make him the foundation. And that's why Jesus talks about building Building the house, brick by brick, by his people. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundational piece that makes everything go together and tie together. So he is the founder. Then the idea of the perfecter, or some of your translations may say finisher of our faith. Once again, we stay in Hebrews. We look at chapter 10. We just went through just about a month or so ago. Chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can, never, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, ever, every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what he's saying here is he says, look, there was this system in this old system, and we sacrificed animals, and we did all these things, year after year after year. But none of those things will ever make us perfect. We covered this months ago. It, it will never make us perfect. We can never sacrifice enough animals. I don't care if they're unblemished animals. We can never do enough of those things. We can never be good enough. Nothing is going to make us perfect. Nothing is going to atone for the sin debt that we have in our life. We're imperfect. We are flawed. We are rebellious. Nothing is going to do that. And notice what he says, though, there. He says, Nothing is going to make perfect, right, us, except for those who draw near. So he's saying Christ can make us perfect if we will draw near. Now, if we just jump forward to a few verses in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, he kind of explains this. He says, for by a single offering, now he's talking about Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's saying, look, if we will draw near, Christ will perfect us. 
and he will sanctify us over time. He's doing it. He's working. But he will make us perfect in the sight of God. He will atone for our sin. And he will continue to work in us to sanctify us. And finally then, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. This was the the last verse of our text last week as we closed out. What's it say there? It says, since God has provided something better for us. Now here he was talking about all of the, the Old Testament saints that, that were faithful, it was commended them and their, for their faith, but yet they had not received the promise, right? Christ hadn't come. The mystery of the gospel, they were looking forward to a Messiah, but they hadn't come. And so they, they didn't have it. They hadn't obtained it. So since God has provided something better for us, now he's writing, the author saying here in the New Testament, we've, we've had Christ. We've, we've seen the mystery of the gospel. It's been realized. And then he says, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, he's saying, apart from us, because not, not anything they've done, but apart from what we've experienced in Christ, the Messiah, they won't be made perfect because the only thing that makes us perfect is a relationship with Christ. And so they were looking forward to what would make them perfect. And apart from us, they cannot be perfect. Apart from what God has done here in the New Testament, they cannot be made perfect. So clearly, Jesus is the founder of our faith. He is the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. You know, that whole idea, even when Jesus is on the cross, I don't have this slide up, but when Jesus says, it is finished, it is finished. He's the finisher. He's the completion. He's the thing that that resets all things. I was talking to someone after first service and this whole idea of, of in the, the new heaven and the new earth, you know, it's done. He, he's completed all things. He's put death and sin down. He, everything has been made new. He's perfected everything back to the state of the garden. There is no more sin in the world. There is no more tears and weeping. And He's perfected it. And he's perfecting us. Okay, number three. Number three. So not only does the author here tell us how to run, He tells us what we should focus on as we run, but now he tells us what we need to complete the race. What do we need to complete the race? Now, this idea of completing a race or this competition, it's like obtaining a a goal and finishing. And and so I will tell you that when... um, when I was in high school, I played sports, I played soccer, and, and my, my, uh, specifically my sophomore year, we were trying out and, you know, tryouts for soccer like in end of July, August, like the hottest time on the earth any time during the year, and, and we're having 12-hour practices outside. And we are running, and we are running, and we are running, and, and then we go to two-a-days, we've got four hours in the morning, four hours in the night, and I know football players do that and all sorts of things, and they have all that gear on, I don't know how they do that, but um, why would I do that? <laughs> why would anyone do that? I mean, we had guys throwing up because of running so much. And I know many of you that have played sports have experienced this. Why would we do that? Well, I believed that there was a spot on the team for me if I could run and stay running and be in, have endurance, that, that I could make the team. And I, I believe that because I trusted the coach. The coach said, I'm going to have tryouts, and if you, if you do well, you'll make the team. And so I'm running, and so when I'm tired and I'm, I'm wanting to quit, I, I, I see the picture, I, I'm trusting the coach. If I didn't trust the coach, I would not be running. If I did not trust that he was being honest, if I did not trust what, 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 the, what the coach had planned, I would not be running. 
And so the first thing I want to show you here is that it, I think what the author is going to try and explain to these guys is, is what we need to complete the race. The first thing we need is that we need to be able to trust the Father's plan. Right? He's encouraging these people, his readers, to say, look, if you're going to run, if you're going to give your life away, if you're going to risk your life, possibly being beaten or flogged or stoned to death, then the first thing that you need is you need to have a trust in God's plan. Today, if you're really going to live for Christ, you've got to trust that what God says is true. You've got to say, I believe the scripture is really true. If you're going to live away and possibly lose a friend or, or, or it's or whatever it may be that's going to cost you something in your walk with Christ, it's because you believe that God has a plan and he is faithful. And what he's just telling these people is, is that you've got to trust that God has this plan. And so what do we see here? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy that was set before him. See, that's the plan. That's, that's the purpose and the plan of God. There's a joy that, that God had set before Jesus. There's this thing that Jesus could see. And what was that joy? It doesn't come right out and say, but I think we can pretty much extrapolate out and say this joy was that he was going to bring glory to his Father. He was fulfilling the role that he was, was, was brought to earth to do. He came down from heaven to fulfill this role, and it was going to bring glory to him and to his Father. Because, see, his Father had a plan. And his plan was to send his Son to redeem sinful people which was going to bring himself glory and to bring his son glory. And Jesus trusted that plan. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus comes up against it and says, you know, I, Father, if there's another way, I don't want to do this, but if, it, if it's your will, then I'll do it. He was trusting in the plan. And so if you're going to run, and if you're going to run and have endurance, and if you're going to do that, the first thing that you made to make sure that you do is you need to meditate and understand the plan of God. You need to understand that's why we teach verse by verse in the Scripture, because we want you to be so saturated and so clear that God is who he says he is that you will trust him in any circumstance, because you'll just say, no, he is real. He is not something that we just go to church on and we, we talk about these moral things that we do. No, I've seen it in history. I've seen it in the text. I've seen it in prophecy. I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it in the, the integral details of the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they go together. I've seen it in the 35 different authors over 1,500 years that it has been written. I so am so sure I can trust it because he's getting ready to tell them that Jesus had to trust the Father's plan because he was going to endure something. And if he didn't trust it, then he would not endure the cross. So what does it say there? It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? He endured the cross. So what's, what's the thing I think the author is saying, that how, what we need to do to complete the race is that we need a willingness to endure suffering. We need a willingness to endure suffering. Now, now we talked a lot about this last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But there's a willingness to endure suffering. But we won't endure the suffering unless we see what's on the other side. There's no point to suffer for nothing. There's no point to endure if there's nothing you're enduring for. Why not just give in? Because something was set before him, and it was the joy. And I think that we can apply that to our life, that we're running, and there's a joy that is set before us. That joy for us is Christ. That joy for us is the reality that we will be forgiven if we will be faithful and believe that Jesus has a way to make us right. We have to trust that plan, we have to, and we have to have a willingness to suffer if that's true. But we have to believe that it is true. 
and willingness to suffer. Like I said, last week we, we talked a lot about that, this idea that people in the Old Testament were stoned to death and they were sawn in two. And we looked at the New Testament and we saw that these, the early, early saints, James was put to death, beheaded early on. People in the, like the second and third century put in the Colosseum and, and fed to the lions. There was all of this suffering. We see it all over the world today that people are dying and being persecuted for their faith. And they have to have a willingness to suffer. And the reason they have a willingness to suffer is because they believe what the scripture says and they believe that God has a plan to redeem them and to save them. Those things are so tightly held together, and so he's motivating them. The reader, the author here is trying to motivate them and remind them and instruct them of these biblical truths here. And it says, he was despising the shame. This idea of crucifixion was, was brutal, and, and, and many most people estimate that the Roman government killed maybe 30,000 people in crucifixions, and they, they held put people along the road and, and there was crucifix, you know, crosses all along the road and people were hanging there dying and many of these people obviously didn't have any clothes on and so it was an idea of shaming you. They wanted to shame you somehow. And so that's what they were doing. They were shaming people. It wasn't just to kill them. Yes, that was a big piece of it. That was part of it, but part of it was shame. And so this idea is that they wanted, Jesus wanted, they wanted to shame him. And so what does it say here when he says, he despised the shame I think a better way to look at that is he refused to see it as shame. Jesus refused to see it as shame. He, he didn't acknowledge it that way. Just like last week, one of the scriptures that we talked about was, it says, you know, that, that when we suffer, we're, we're suffering, we should be counted, um, we should be glad that we're suffering for Christ. We don't count it as suffering because we're doing it for Christ. And I think that's where Jesus was. He said, look, I don't count this. I, for the glory set before me is so much greater that this, I'm not even recognizing this. He's despising it. He's despising it. And what happens at the end of that then? It says, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now go back to the metaphor. He is seated. Remember we talked about in the, in the Holy of Holies, no one ever sat, the priest never sat. Here the victor is seated. And the metaphor here is that they were seated with royalty after running the race. And here obviously we see that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see that also in, in Philippians chapter 2. And what does he get? He gets a crown. He gets the laurel crown. Christ got a crown. Now, it wasn't obviously, it was a crown of thorns, but the picture here is the same. All right, let's look at last verse, verse 3. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, this word, consider him, this word consider, we talked about this about a month or so ago. It is not something that's a question. It's not saying an encouragement that you should consider. It's saying, it's, it's an imperative. It's saying, consider him. Meditate on him. Remember what he has done. Because if you're going to run this race you, and you're going to focus on him, you have to understand what he did. And you have to hold that clear in your head. You cannot waver from that. You need to consider all of it, right? Consider him who endured Right? From sinners, such hostility. What kind of hostility? He was accused falsely. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was finally crucified. And what the author is saying is, consider that. Think on that. It, it's not a saying, oh, you should consider whether this is true or not. He said, no, you consider it. Think through it all the time. Do that. Because if that's true, it has, 
consequences for how we live our life. There's a truth there, a biblical truth that we need to hold on to and we need to have a crystal clarity in it. And so we need to consider it constantly. And why? Because if you don't, what's he say? You may grow weary and faint-hearted. Because see, if, if you don't stay focused on Jesus, if you don't continue to make sure that you understand that God has a plan and you're so rooted in it, if, if you're not willing to do that, you will grow weak and faint-hearted and, and you won't follow. You have to be reminded of the prize. You have to be reminded of the, the purpose and why we're running and who we're running to. When we think about going to heaven, when we think about spending eternity with God, I want to just encourage you and, and I know that many of us think this way at times, and I just want to be clear that scripturally, kind of where we're at, is, is our desire is to set our hearts and our minds on Christ, right? And, and so, um, well, I'll just give you the big idea, and then we'll talk about this. Or your next step, excuse me. Your next step. Keep your, eye, keep your focus on Christ so that you can finish the race. So the whole point of this passage is the motivating these believers, these Jewish Hebrew believers, to focus on Christ. Not on the Old Testament, not on the sacrificial system, not on their sin, lay aside everything down and focus on Jesus and run with endurance, run with perseverance, run with confidence, right? So if we're going to do that, we have to stay focused on Christ. I want to caveat this a little bit. So when, when we think about when we die... I've heard people say, and I understand this, um, but I, I just want to bring some clarity to it. People say, I can't wait to see so-and-so. Dad, mom, my brother. And look, I, do I think that we will know each other in heaven, in the new heaven and new earth? Yes, I do believe that. But your focus should not be on seeing mom and dad. I just want to be real clear. Your focus is wanting to see Jesus. My mom and dad, I hope are there. My brother is there. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I want to see them someday. But my focus is wanting to see Jesus. I want to see my king. I want to see my savior. I, I, I'm looking forward to Jesus. I'm looking forward to being delivered from this body of sin. I'm looking forward to not having the mind that I have. I'm looking forward to not having the body that I have. I'm looking forward to, to being made right, to be made perfect, to be glorified because of what Christ has done. I'm looking for that. That's my goal. That's my focus. Not seeing my father or my mom. That's, that's down here, yes, that'll be a great thing. But, but we so badly, we so want to begin to, to say, no, I can't wait to go to heaven to see so-and-so. Okay, but shouldn't Jesus be the first thing? Shouldn't, shouldn't go, going to be with Christ for eternity, shouldn't that be the thing? Because that's what our focus should be. It is, it is not on all the witnesses that are surrounding us that we're focused on. No, we're, we're looking to them because they've been looking to Jesus. That's the example for us. And so we should look that way. And if we do, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we, how do, we do this? One of the things that we do... Um, and one of the things that God has given us is this thing called the Lord's Supper or communion. And so it, it points to Jesus. It puts our focus on Christ and him alone. Two simple things. This, this bread, this little bit of cracker, unleavened bread, and this juice. And it points us to Jesus. 
Because what, God, what Jesus is saying is what you need to be focused on in why you endure suffering and why you're living out your life, while you're running this race, is me. Is me. What I have done. Who I am. It's me. Nothing else. When nothing else is pointing to anything else, it's me. You keep your eyes and focus on me. And so right now I'm going to ask the elders, um, the elders, some of the guys that are uh, here today to the ushers to pass out uh, the communion. And what I'd like you to do is just hold on to it for a few minutes. And, and when you do that, uh, we'll, we'll read some scripture and we're going to take it together. But as they're passing it out, I, I want to just remind you a little bit about um, when we celebrate communion. First and foremost, as I said during announcements, if you're not a Christ follower here today, we would ask that you um, not take communion. It is something that's really reserved for people who uh, have a personal relationship with Christ, have been born again. Uh, just let it pass in front of you. No, no problem there. Um, and this, this, I want to remind you that this thing really started communion. The, the roots of it are really all the way back into the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Egypt when the angel of death passed over and they called it Passover, and that's where the Jews started this idea of Passover. And they got together, and they um, had this meal. It was the night before they were going to be delivered out of Egypt, and they were going to be set free, and the angel of death was going to be sent, and all the firstborn uh, were going to die, even the firstborn of animals. And, and so what happens is, is that they put blood. They killed a lamb, or a, it had to be a male, perfect lamb, or a goat, from didn't matter, and they would put blood over their, uh, the lentils and on the doorposts. And we talked about that just a few weeks ago. And the angel of death would pass over and they would not die. They would not die. And, and so this picture here then is, is where this gets started. And if you remember, when Jesus is, the night before he is crucified, he is celebrating Passover, this, this beautiful picture that God has displayed of his grace and his mercy. And they're celebrating Passover in an upper room. And Jesus now is going to become the lamb that was slain. He's going to become the thing that if we embrace and accept, then death will pass over us as well. It'll pass over us. And so what Jesus is telling them in the upper room, he says, look, I've come to give you this example, uh, to show you who I am, and to say who I am, but here's the work that I'm going to do. I'm going to have to die so that you can be forgiven. I'm going to have to, to go before the, but I won't stay dead. I will be resurrected. And so he's explaining this to them, and he does this beautiful thing. He washes their feet, but but. Why he's doing this, before the meal, he breaks some bread and he, he passes it around. He says, this is my body broken for you. I don't know that they understood what that meant, but what basically Jesus was saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be broken. I'm going to be beaten to inch of my life. I, I'm going I'm to break my body. I'm going to be obedient. I'm never going to sin. So that in that sense, I'm going to break my body. And then ultimately, I'm going to die. And that's what the juice represents, this 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 wine or this grape juice. And so this idea that he's willingly giving his life away. And so Jesus basically tells, tells them all this because he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's important to remember what I've done. It's important for you to stay focused on who I am and what I've done. Because if you move away from who I am, if you say that I'm just a good teacher, if you say that I'm, I'm just a, a good guy in history, one of many teachers, then you're not understanding who I am. If you, if you don't understand what I've done, if you don't understand that I am God in the flesh and I've died and lived sinlessly and I'm going to be raised from the dead and that if you will believe in me, you will have eternal life with me. If you don't understand that, then you do not have eternal life. And so it's that important. It's that important. And so that's what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He's not asking us to remember anything else. He's not asking us to remember all the people that have died before us. He's not asking us to remember, you know, 
the day I was born, the day he was born. He's not asking us to celebrate Christmas. He's saying, remember who I am. Remember who I am. And so I'm going to give you just a few minutes to spend some time in prayer to remember who he is. If you have sin in your life, I would encourage you to confess that sin. And if it's, un, if it's unrepented sin and you cannot let go of it, I would encourage you not to take communion. And so I'm just going to give you a few minutes and I'll come back and we'll take communion together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, we know that we wander. Our minds, our hearts, our flesh. 
it chases many things. And many times we focus on the wrong things. And so, Lord, we thank you for instituting the Lord's Supper, for giving us something that always remembers and points us back to you. Something that fully symbolizes the, the life that you lived, the sacrifice that you made, the suffering that you endured, ultimately leading to your death. But as we've talked this morning, Father, it is the thing that was necessary to redeem us, to give us a perfection, a righteousness not our own, so that we could be made right. Father, help us to understand that truth. Because, Lord, when we understand that truth, we will run with confidence. We will run in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Lord, I pray that today this act of worship is pleasing to you. It is worthy of you. Father, we know that we are broken. We know that we are sinful. So Lord, help our hearts to be humble before you today as we do this. If anyone here has sin in their heart, Father, that is unconfessed, Father, will you help them to be able to turn away from it? Will you help them to lay it down and turn away? We remind them of the promise that you've made that you will forgive them. You're faithful and just to forgive them and purify them from all unrighteousness. May their trust be in you and you alone. Father, we thank you for our time together here today as a family. We, we take this together as a family. It's something that we do together as an act of worship for you as the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for our time here together. We thank you for your word. And so be with us now as we celebrate the life and the death of Jesus and remember that we need to stay focused on him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Verse 25, it says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. leave you with one final scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, 
but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together today. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that the author gives, not just that he gave to those Hebrews in his letter, but Father, that he has given to your church for some 2,000 years through these words. These three beautiful, simple verses that tells us how to run, how to do this and endure, where to keep our eyes focused so that we will not grow weary. Lord, we acknowledge that it is you ultimately that is helping us to run, to making us that we can run. It is you, the author of faith. You're the founder of our salvation. You're the perfecter of us. But we have a responsibility to run, Father. To run for you. To be faithful. To be obedient. To be willing to suffer. That's what it takes. So, Father, we thank you as we keep our eyes focused on Christ through this time of communion of the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray if there's someone here today that does not know you, that somehow today your word will not return void in their heart. So draw them into a personal relationship with you for your glory and for their good. As we go from this place today, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on Christ so that we can run and finish this race that you've laid before us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.